Hi, welcome to another episode of Uskogans, the International Law Podcast. If you're among those who have engaged in the dynamic world of the Jessup competition, whether as a competitor, coach, judge, or an organizer, you'll find this episode to be particularly resonant. Since my involvement in Jessup began in 2016, the idea of drafting a Jessup mood problem has always intrigued me. I know this is a sentiment shared by many friends I've connected with through the Jessup competition. But today, finally, I'm delighted to say that we have the pleasure of hosting four seasoned Jessup experts who will be offering their valuable perspectives on creating a mood problem for the competition. This episode has been in the pipeline for more than a year. I remember chasing Michael down during the International Law Weekend in New York back in October 2022. So I'm really glad we're finally getting around to it. And our guests today, of course, include Michael Pyle, who is the Executive Director of the International Law Students Association and the Global Administrator of the Jessup Competition. He has been involved in the competition since 1995 as competitor, coach, judge, and national administrator. He has authored or co-authored five Jessup problems. From 2003 to 2013, Michael lived in the Kingdom of Bhutan, where he helped found the Jigme Singye Vangchuk School of Law, that nation's first law school. He also served at the school's founding vice dean and an associate professor of law. Next up, we have Stephen M. Schneebaum, who is a lawyer in private practice in Washington, D.C. After 36 years in large law firms, he established his own firm in 2014, which focuses on litigation and international dispute resolution, representing clients in U.S. courts as well as in transnational and domestic arbitral proceedings. He was a founding chair and is now chair-elect of the International Law Students Association, served for a six-year term as a counselor to the American Society of International Law, and is the honorary vice president of the American branch of the International Law Association. We also have the pleasure of being joined by Leslie Ben, who is currently working as general counsel at the Washington DC headquarters of DAR, one of the world's largest service organizations for women. She is ILSA's longest serving executive director, having served from 2012 to 2022, overseeing all aspects of the Jessup competition during her tenure. She previously practiced international arbitration for over a decade, specializing in investor state claims and served as an adjunct professor at George Mason Mason University while coaching his Jessup teams. She has a JD from Georgetown University Law Center and a BA from McGill University. Last but not the least, we're joined by Dr. Asaf Lubin, who is an associate professor of law at Indiana University, Maurer School of Law and a fellow at IU's Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research. He is additionally an affiliated fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project, a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, and a visiting scholar at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem's Federman Cybersecurity Research Center, he was also the sole author of the 2016 Jessup problem, which was and is my personal favorite, and has served on ILSA's editorial committee ever since. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, and after these uh, very impressive introductions, I turn it over to Michael. Michael, so when did the competition start soliciting proposals for its mood problems? If you could start us off with that, and then we can take the discussion forward. Sure. So uh, the last time I was executive director was from uh, 2001 to 2006. And uh, in my first year, 
the board uh, of directors of ILSA and I sat down and said, you know what, we could really diversify the pool of authors and maybe diversify the topics if we threw it out to the universe, if we made a public call. So the very first call we made was in 2001. Uh, and the very first problem that was a result of that open call was 2002's case concerning regulation of access to the internet. Now, I, I've shared this story with you a couple of times, but uh, uh, it wasn't um, a good omen for the success of this. And I'm glad to see that the open call has continued for 20 years. Uh, we got we got an author. Uh, we had a number of applications from outside of ILSA and outside the Friends of Jessup Network. So we got an author who had nothing to do, no history with the Jessup, no no involvement, submitted a lovely problem, um, and then left. You know, did not participate in any editing, did not write a second draft, did not respond to emails, uh, and so on and so forth. So, um, so the what became the editorial committee in later years spent that summer rewriting the problem. So, but it's it's now been. I guess we're in the 21st year of the open call system. So 2000, 2001, 2002. Huh. Uh, and Stephen, if we go further back than that, what, what, was, the, what was the process back then, if, if you remember? I do remember. The first uh, Jessup company that I wrote was for the competition in 1982, um, which I should hasten to add, I was 12 years old at the time. Um, not, not really. Um, but in, in those days, well, first, when, when ILSA was still part of the American Society of International Law, um, it was the ASIL that um, would determine the topic or area that it wanted this year's problem to focus on, uh, and then just look for someone uh, among the ASIL sort of insiders, if you like, uh, to, to take the pen. Um, and I mean, 1982, I was certainly not an ASIL insider. I'd been a member for only several years at that point, but I judged uh, the prior rounds of, of, of the competition. And frankly, I thought, you know, this is a, it's a great event, but the problem could be a whole lot better. I think I can do better. Um, and so um, I approached the society and said, you know, it's about time we had a problem focused specifically on human rights. Um, and they said, what a great idea. Go ahead and write it, which I did. Uh, then we had a single meeting around the table in Tiller House, the ASIL headquarters here in Washington, uh, a single meeting with various uh, academics and experts in the field who made some suggestions as to how the problem should be recast. And I said, OK, message received, went back, made the changes, and that was the problem. And that went on really for, um, well, up until the time that Michael began to describe, as ILSA achieved its uh, separation or independence from ASIL in the early 90s, um, the, the basic system didn't change very much. Instead of going to ASIL staff or uh, team members, uh, we had by that time developed our own team members. Uh, and one or more of them would either volunteer to write the problem or would be asked to write it, um, sometimes with not enormous success. There were a couple of times, for example, when someone was tasked with writing a problem, wrote it, handed it in, and 
the executive office said, uh, no, this simply won't do. Back to the drawing board. And, and we would just go ahead and find somebody else and start again. That happened more than once. Uh, Leslie, this, uh, this is becoming a bit of a pattern now, but I'm moving further back in time now. And just out of curiosity, what were the topics of the first ever Jessup food problem? Oh boy. So th this is going back before, before I was born for the record, but I'm, I, you know, I know that the name of the case in the very first ever Jessup year in 1960 was the Cuban agrarian reform case. Um, I know that because we had it printed on those fabulous 60 year celebration t-shirts that we had printed several years ago. Um, but I don't know much more beyond that case than the case name. I know that we, we didn't adopt the, the practice of um, using fictional country names uh, in cases at that point. Um, but beyond that, I'm going to have to defer if anyone has more information about, about the topics of that particular year. Well, I can add a little bit to that, um, and that is to give credit for the writing of that original compromis to our founder, um, Stephen Schwebel, who was at that time a young teaching assistant at Harvard Law School, uh, who was working with Professor Richard Baxter um, on, uh, you know, teaching international law. And since moot court had caught on as a very good teaching instrument in law schools around the world, uh, someone, either Baxter or Schwebel, said, uh, hey, why don't we do that on the international plane? Uh, and so Steve Schwebel was uh, tasked with drafting a moot court problem that could be kicked around by students um, in Harvard Law School. And so it was for the first year. Um, and indeed, there were only four students who volunteered to participate in that first round. Um, and uh, so there were four. OK, well, we want to have two teams of two. So two of them, as it turned out, were American and two of them were not. So the first competition was between the two American Harvard Law School students and the two non-American. One was a New Zealander and the other was Canadian. Uh, and they they mooted the problem that Leslie just referenced concerning Cuban agrarian reform between the United States and Cuba, real real countries involving real issues. And then apparently someone at Columbia, a friend of Schwebel's, uh, heard about this. Uh, Yale got involved, Columbia got involved, and then it was two teams, and then it was four, and then it was eight, and now we are at 100 countries and 650 or 700 teams. Ah, uh, problems with uh, the mute button, you know, as uh, happens with technology. But uh, just to add uh, for our listeners as well, I believe this year Harvard also did a piece where they actually interviewed one of the participants from that year. And it makes for quite an interesting read. So I'll, I'll also link it to, to this as well. And, and I encourage you all to also that but Stephen, uh, coming back to you once again, uh, could you walk us through the evaluation and selection process of the proposals that you receive in this new format, which has been going yeah. on for more than twenty years? And precisely, what is the board looking for in a proposal when when it's doing this evaluation? Sure. Well, that that question is uh, harder to answer than it is to ask, as you would imagine. But but let me give it a shot. We're looking for several things. We're looking first for interesting 
challenging and open uh, legal topics. That is, topics, issues that have not been resolved definitively by an international instrument or by the International Court of Justice, but ones that are still subject to open debate around the world. And we like them to be timely issues, issues that um, that actually affect perhaps current litigation or perhaps current scholarly writing. So that's one very important criterion. <clears throat> Another is that the problem, of course, needs to be balanced. We have to have a problem where it is as close as we can come to equally possible to argue either side. We want this to be a challenge for both sides, but we don't want either side in effect to have uh, an, an easy coast uh, while the other side has to struggle. So the problem has to be balanced. That doesn't mean that every individual question has to be an equipoise. That's much too difficult to achieve. But the problem overall has to be balanced. Next, we need the, the plot, the, the story that lies behind the compromise to be believable. That is, uh, it needs to be something that approximates to real life as best we can accomplish that. Um, we need to take off our lawyer hats sometimes and put on our frustrated no novelist hats um, because we're, we're writing a story and we want the story to resonate with students. We want students who will be assigned to the applicant side or the respondent side actually to identify with those sides, to believe in the justice, the propriety, the correctness of, of the arguments that they're making. So realism and uh, sort of competent fiction writing uh, need both to be combined to create stories and plot lines that actually work. And then I guess finally, we need the story to be, and maybe I've already alluded to this, we need the story to be engaging. We need the story to be something the students can actually be looking forward to participating in. That means that it can't be too technical. It can't require going down a rabbit hole of one very narrow area of the law. It has to have broader implications than that. And over the years, we've been very lucky in that time after time, we find <clears throat> that the issues that we have flagged in a Jessup company within the next year or two are issues being addressed by the ICJ or issues being addressed in domestic legislation around the world? I, I say we're lucky. I don't think it's luck, really. I think that the, the kind of searching that we do to get the problem that we want um, is precisely the kind of searching <clears throat> that the court does <clears throat> when it decides how to frame up the cases before it and how parties act when they decide what cases to present to the other. Uh, let me, thanks, Steve. Yep. Yeah, let, uh, let me add to that. Um, one other thing that we've found is an indicator of success, not just in getting a proposal accepted, but also in, in editing and polishing it to a, to a finished product, which we'll, we'll talk about a lot more uh, in this conversation. If you are a prospective author, pick a topic, an area of law, a... Um, um, a theme, a plot, whatever it is, that you either know something about or are willing to invest yourself in getting to know a lot about. 
Um, we get a lot of proposals and always have from people saying you should really do something on water rights. So here is a proposal on water rights. And then we, we, we do a back and forth with them. And it turns out that as passionately as they feel that it's time for, for Jessup to do something about water rights or about gender rights or about uh, any number of other things, they're not the author to do it. You know, they feel passionately about it, but they, uh, you know, we're not looking for for subject matter highest level experts, but it, it turns out it's just not their, not their field. Um, and that's for two reasons. One, it informs your proposal. You know, if you know something about it, uh, or you've gotten to know something about your topic, uh, the proposal hangs together better. You know where the nuances are. You know how to tee up the interesting legal issues. And the second one, for your own sanity, you're going to be spending, you know, from the time we select the proposal to the championship round in April of the following year, you're going to be spending more than a year worrying this this topic, worrying this compromis or this this Jessup problem to death, every paragraph, every word, every character, you will spend more time, twice as long on it than anybody else in the universe. Um, and you don't want to pick something that you're going to lose interest in, you know, after after a few weeks. Uh, Leslie, I don't know if you'd like to add anything uh, to the answer as well. Um. I guess just that there there's like any number of ways that the board um, ha during my tenure, at least, ha has been receptive to problems that or problem proposals that you wouldn't think are, you know, the this, this same. Like there's different different authors come at these proposals in a completely different way. And the board has been receptive to different kinds mm -hmm. of ways of approaching the Jessup problem. So for example, there may be a certain type of author that works on um, flushing out legal issues out of sort of a, a singular fact pattern that may sort of naturally lend itself to different legal issues. And then another, another person proposing may have more distinct um, fact patterns and issues that aren't necessarily organically related to one another, but still work in a problem. So I guess I would just say that there's no, you know, one recipe for success in this regard. It's a very, um, you know, it's a, I think, a, a natural environment where there's room for different approaches and different styles and different ways of creatively approaching what we all understand to be an area that is probably most ripe for creative uh, argumentation, which is in public international law. So, uh, thank you, Stephen, Michael, and uh, Leslie, for such a holistic answer to this uh, very seemingly simple but complicated question. Uh, now we turn to the second part of our discussion, which is uh, proposal writing. And Asaf, I want to start with you and ask you specifically from the perspective of an author, where do you tend to find inspiration for the topics that you have ended up choosing? Well, in much the same way that Stephen and Michael and Leslie have just answered your first question, I think that a lot of my answers are the response to the mirror 
image of that. And so if Stephen highlighted that the problem needs to be timely and it needs to reflect live issues that are being debated, then you will find sources of inspiration to these sorts of issues by opening your eyes and looking at the world around you. And so some of this is state practice that is evolving in real time. It's literally catching things from the headlines of the news. Some of it will be blog posts at top international law blogs, uh, academic scholarship that is groundbreaking. Um, a lot of it comes has come for me from going to conferences and events and talking to other scholars and thinkers and practitioners working in these issues and asking them, what do you see in the world? Um, um, and, and a big part of it is looking at case law. So looking through the dockets of the ICJ, the dockets of the European Court of Human Rights, and the dockets of the International Criminal Court, seeing what the cases are, what are the debates, and, and, and sometimes anticipating, when will these cases be decided? Jessup has a history sometimes of picking cases that then get decided even before the Jessup uh, rounds are complete, <laughs> putting putting uh, into flux some some of the of, of the cases. Um, the, the one other thing, I, I just responsive to your to your previous question, I do want to highlight on on the board selection side from the author's perspective, is that just like with the Jessup competition itself, the majority of people participating in Jessup lose the Jessup, and only one team wins. So goes submission of proposals. I had was lucky and privileged in 2016 when I submitted my first ever proposal to be selected that year. But then 2017, I took a break. But then 2018, 2019, 2020, I submitted over and over and over again, over again and I was denied each time. It took me until 2022, last year, when I submitted a Claren Bell together with my colleague Shannon Kish that we got selected that year. But it is to say that you need tenacity. So another thing that um, you need is is the drive to do this and, and understand that there might not be your year one year, and that happens, um, um, and just keep that in mind as well. Thanks, Asaf. Uh, Michael and Stephen, I know you have uh, written multiple uh, Jessup Mood problems. So I'll hand it over to you, Stephen, for the same question followed by Michael as to the creative process that you adopt. No, I don't think I can improve on what Asaf just said. Um, the uh, um, Perhaps, though, I should have added when I was listing the criteria that we look for <clears throat> in selecting a problem, because otherwise listeners might wonder whether Asaf suddenly had lost his knack during those off years. The, an additional criterion is we want variety of the subject matters that we that we talk about. So while there is obviously an enormous interest and an enormous variety of interesting topics in the area of cyber law, for example, um, we, we don't want to have back-to-back -back problems of the same type. <clears throat> Sometimes simply because we may get the same students uh, repeating, that happens. Um, but it just kind of deflates the interest of coaches and also judges around the world to uh, not to have that variety. So now to come back to your question about inspiration. No, I think Asaf is exactly right. There are hot topics that anyone who follows international law issues, even cursorily, um, would be able to identify. So the question, though, always in terms of writing the problem, isn't, oh, wow, I think it would be very interesting to look at issues like the arbitrary deprivation of nationality 
to pick a recent uh, subject. That is undoubtedly an interesting question. But one question alone won't sustain a Jessa problem. We have to have four questions, and they have to be linked in a believable way. They have to be stitched together into a single fabric. And that's very tricky. So it isn't enough for someone who is an expert in human rights law to write a human rights problem that talks about, I don't know, torture or inhumane treatment or something like that. Um, that that will probably not attract the attention of the um, uh, of the editorial committee ra- or of the board. Rather, um, the 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 again the different parts, the different strands of what will end up becoming the Jessup problem need to be there from the beginning. Now, it is certainly true, and I I've witnessed this several times. So has Michael, that we have had problems presented to us with the traditional four questions presented, four QPs, as we say. Um, And one of them just doesn't work, just doesn't fly. The other three are good, and they interrelate well, and they form a cohesive whole, but the fourth one either isn't substantive or it's just an outlier. It doesn't, there's no way to get it into the same package. And so the editorial committee has on numerous occasions simply rewritten uh, the fourth question presented um, and added it. And uh, that's not always something authors like to have to see done to their work, but um, that's that's the process. We did that a couple of years ago, for example, um, yeah, I think it was in 2020, um, when we added a uh, a World Trade Organization issue, a Lex Specialis issue, um, that had not been in the draft submitted to us by the authors. And we tried to work with them to come up with a fourth question that would fit. We couldn't come up with one altogether, so the editorial committee simply substituted our our judgment. Yeah, I mean, if I'm recalling correctly, I think there have even been times where the board at the evaluation stage has considered that one of the issues might not work and even gone back to the person proposing at that stage just to say, hey, we don't really think that this fourth issue is going to work. Do you still want to move forward, understanding that we might have to come up with a new one Um, or give them an opportunity to even fix that fourth issue or come up with something new? So there's like flexibility, I think, in sort of how the board receives those um, as well. And I think in the first instance, the the choice is always to work with the author and allow the author the opportunity to come up with a fourth issue that does work before um, before letting the committee or someone else take over. As far as, as, far as inspiration goes, the, the, the thing that Asaf said that uh, uh, um, I want to underscore is conferences and things like that. So many, going back 25 years, so many of our Jessup problems have their their roots or their initial roots um, in a conversation, either at the ASIO annual meeting or at an ESIO conference or at a workshop or or at the international rounds, um, where a couple of people sit down and and start talking to each other. So and and that's you know not just in the Jessup verse. Um, I've heard conversations about, yes, we had a meeting in Singapore and somebody said, hey, 
has the Jessup ever done anything on this topic you and I are about to serve on a panel, you know, about? Oh, I don't think they have. Do you know anybody at the Jessup? Well, I, you know, they've got a, they've got an announcement saying, submit your proposals. Um, those conversations, and, and that goes back to what we said before about it has to be current. You know, if it's on your mind and it's on other people's minds, then it's probably pretty current. Um, my, my inspiration for my problems tends to, uh, you know, I tend to react to what's going on either in the ICJ or in public international law or, or in that year's Jessup problem. Um, and so I've got a sort of a thread through mine of, um, you know, the real party and in interest. So we had the Yak problem where the real party and in interest was actually the indigenous people, but they're not a state, so they don't get to appear. You know, we have the rabbit problem where the real party and in interest was a multinational enterprise uh, who had done some horrible things. But of course, they're not a state, so they can't be there. So it's state versus state. We had the Russian Union where the real party and in interest is essentially the European Union for denying a state uh, membership. We had East Agnostica, where the, the real party and in interest is a province of a state. And what they really want is to know whether their elections are valid or whether they've, they've separated or not. Um, and, and then I sort of build around those things based upon what's not getting discussed, you know, in a recent case in the ICJ or in a recent Jessup problem or whatever. Um, so that's, that's where I get, you know, that's where I get uh, get problem ideas from, and it usually takes a couple of years for those to bubble to the surface. Thank you, everyone, for your very detailed insights. And Asaf, in this uh, hypothetical scenario where we're going sort of in a chronological order, so we've you know taken your input on what the creative process is. Now let's sit down and do the boring part, which is actually writing the proposal. It could be fun, I guess. I mean, depending on who you ask. But, but could you tell our listeners what the proposal entails, like the specific components that go into a proposal, and any strategies or tips that you might have for anyone looking to write a proposal? Well, in terms of practical, technical requirements, those have changed over the years and are likely to continue to change uh, as time progresses with Jessup. When I submitted my 2016 Frost Files problem, I had to write a full draft. I wrote like a 4,000 word. And, and, and what we realized quickly then is that those 4,000 words never stayed the 4,000 words. There's no point in writing 4,000 words because it's going to get changed 7,000 times after it, which is why it moved to this, write us a short 1,000 word, um, highlighting the core bullet points of the problem instead of writing a full, well-developed narrative. Um, and that, I think, is a, was a smart move uh, that allowed us to kind of zoom in on the, the core legal issues that the problem looks to address. I think many of us who are drafting these, uh, I've had the privilege of looking at some of these proposals, including by friends of mine, say Peter Zeng, who has also produced multiple uh, JESA problems over the years and had shared them with me in his drafting stages. Many of us have used footnotes at time as a way to address the 1,000 word limit being too limiting. <laughs> and so we provide additional explanations on, on the particular choices we're making using footnotes. Um, but, but the core of what you're focused on in that drafting stage is to try and provide a compelling set of issues that, um, in the words of Stephen from before, interrelate uh, to tell a, some kind of an uh, um, overarching story that the problems all will, in some respects, be I 
self-identifying, but also bleed into each other to be coherent enough. Um, it, it should also mix old and new in the sense that I think we need traditional Jessup issues. Those tend to be um, there every year. Um, and they can be a variety of these more traditional subjects from state responsibility issues to treaty interpretation issues. We need those because that's the baseline. Um, we want to provide those skill sets every year to new Jessup participants. But then we also want to combine that with cutting edge issues that will be at the at the front lines of, of thinking. Also related to that, a mixture of sources. So you want some customary law, some treaty law, some textual interpretation, some general principles. Um, I think where many of us debate uh, what is an effective and convincing proposal is the extent to which it needs to focus on breadth versus depth. I think that over the years, and and if you've seen this with Jessup years, just compare the Jessup problem that um, Shannon and I wrote, the Claire and Bell problem, to, to the state we get criticized for it being way too big uh, versus uh, this year's problem. Uh, which I think is very, very focused, um, and thereby allowing great deal of depth and, fo uh, and focus through that on the research. Um, that's a question. That's I, I can I can give you my opinions why I think breadth is great, uh, um, but but that's a question um, that that authors could and and strategic one that authors can can debate. And then the, the other elements of the proposal um, have included in the past. I know we'll talk about them. Um, a list of sources from which you might uh, derive um, your arguments uh, or or tie-ins to major cases that could have uh, could make this lively. A list of uh, experts who Ilsa might consult theoretically in uh, making decisions around the proposal. Uh, a writing sample. Um, um, in the past, I've used papers that I've written or. If I was a student, which I was in 2015 when I proposed proposed 2016, I just used my LLM paper as my writing sample. Um, but that gives the the board a chance to, especially if you're new, a chance to vet you to some extent about your writing skills and your ability to write, um, as well as your CV or your capacity to, as as Michael said, to be an expert who's able to comment on these issues. The very last thing I want to say is a, a word about collaboration. Um, this thing cannot happen by one author, even when there is a sole author on a, on a given Jessup, it's not written by a sole author. And so there's two things I wanna highlight here. One is the collaboration with the board initially, and then the editorial committee later on. That means it's not just that they will come to you with requests, you need to come in with flexibility of mind to embrace those changes and be willing to engage in this collaborative work where you understand that this is not, it has to be my way or no way. Uh, it's, it's a process and it takes a village. But the other thing, and I think equally important, is the need to have a support system uh, throughout this process because you're gonna get frustrated as is natural with these things. Um, and that support system can come from co-authors. In fact, I would say co-authors is what I would recommend for people, especially when they do this the first time, in part because the expert knowledge on four issues is really not something any one of us can always have. And having multiple cooks means multiple expertise on multiple sets of issues, but also multiple people with whom you can vet and, and, and cry when needed and, and, and be joyous when needed.
So those would be my tips. Uh, Michael and Stephen, I don't know if you have anything to add. Let me let me throw out one thought for what it's worth. Um, Asaf mentioned the transition from the original uh, earlier scheme where we required uh, a full draft down to this more recent uh, modification in which we asked for a thousand word summary. The reason for that, and it's a very important reason, is that um, when we were asking people who had never done this before to write up the entire problem, including both the legal issues and the novelistic aspects, the plot line, we were asking too much. It just wasn't fair. It, was, it isn't fair to expect a brilliant legal scholar also to be a good novelist or a, a wonderful creative writer to be able to delve deeply into legal issues. So it makes much more sense for us to get an impression of where the prospective author wants to go, what the problem would look like, and let us then work together at putting the, the meat on the bones, to making the plot, putting making the plot live, making the story, the legal issues, weaving the legal issues, as I keep saying, into the fabric of the narrative. And that is um, is probably, and maybe there are you know brilliant lawyers who are also brilliant writers, Scott Turo, I guess, Richard Henry Dana, but they're not many. Uh, they're few and far between, and um, and we don't we don't need to be looking for that because the experience that the editorial committee has had going back decades can probably take care of the narrative part. So what we really want is somebody who has an exciting, vibrant idea for how to put together several, four, ideally interesting, topical balanced and modern um, legal issues that will hold students' attention. And, you know, one of the things you're constantly aware of, I know Asaf is and Michael and Leslie, is that whatever it is that we put out is going to be read by thousands of people. Thousands of students around the world are going to spend their time working on Asaf's problem or my problem or Michael's problem. Um, and that's both a, it's a thrill, but it's also a big challenge because it's got to be good or else, um, you know, we have that author's breakfast in April and we don't want students saying, what in the world were you thinking of when you have these countries at war and suddenly they go to the ICJ as if they were the best of friends? How in the world would that happen? Well, we don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want, we want questions about why this plot twist or why this legal issue, but we don't want questions that say this doesn't make sense as you wrote it. Dad, I, I, the form of the application to me has always been secondary. Um, you know, we've seen it change. You have to submit a CV, you have to submit a writing sample, you have to submit this, 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 this. And then even the proposal itself you know, 5,000 words, fully fleshed compromis, 1,000 words. I think we've had it even shorter than 1,000 words in the past. Um, honestly, even if you broke all of those rules, but you had an epic problem, you know, that, that 
any rational human being would look at and say, yes, it is timely, it is interesting, it is whatever. We will throw all of those forms out the window and say, get these people, get them signed up. You know, this is our proposal. Um, and we've, we've seen that, you know. So I would say your, your rule with the proposal itself is don't use any more words than you have to. Um, we get a lot of proposals, um, including quite recent proposals, where they just go on and on and on about something that is, is probably very interesting to them, but doesn't really sell the problem, doesn't tell us why it's time, why it's current, why it's interesting, why it's balanced. Um, but at the same time, if there are things that you think are really a hook, you know, a plot line or, and this is how I intend to connect the nasty bits of the yak with the uh, pharmaceutical industry or whatever. And I need that for my problem. Otherwise, you don't see how these two issues are in the same thing. Throw that in, even if it puts you a little over a thousand words or, or you know, even if it's, it's not strictly necessary. But, you know, it's an elevator pitch. Uh, at the end of the day, um, sell us on why this why you're so passionate, why this is something you study and you read about and you would love to spend the next year and a half with us uh, deeply concerned about and arguing about. And students around the world will join you in that, in that uh, adventure. That's obviously key. I should, also, I should also point out on that, and some of our authors have figured this out, um, the, uh, it's a great way to get eyeballs on your publications, your books, your articles, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and we all know that, uh, that for tenure decisions and for promotion decisions and everything else, employers care about how much impact your articles are having. Boy, there is no better way to have 4,000 students around the world clicking on your article on SSRN or academia, you know, or, or whatever, than to have it be central to the to the topic of that year's uh, Jessup Compromis. And so um, we've had we've had a number of people who weren't even authors, but who were basic materials or who were who had written an article right on the topic, who suddenly in the Jessup verse become superstars well beyond the impact that they are in fact having. And they get to go to their dean and say, by the way, I was the number three article on, NS on SSRN last year in the entire category of international law. Now, don't ask why, because, you know, it's because 3,000 students are loading it and reloading it and reloading it and reloading it. But uh, um, and that's that's part of what I'm saying. Make it something that you care about and that you're doing in your career or in your avocation or whatever anyway, uh, because it just has so there, there are so many wonderful synergies then that, you know, you can be spending all of this time writing and reaping the rewards of picking something that's that's right in your wheelhouse. I want to pick up on the point that Stephen mentioned as well, which is that students will also go on a journey with you. And as we've seen, you know, in every single Jessup year, there's, of course, the four QPs. And then, you know, there is a journey within each QP and everyone goes down the rabbit hole. And, you know, they come up with a wide variety of arguments that they want to throw in a particular QP. So, Michael, to what extent is the potential author expected to list down sub-issues within a QP while writing the proposal? You know, I, I cannot remember a year where the decision has turned on how thoroughly you've followed every sub-issue or how many sub-issues it has. 
Um, I can remember many conversations with authors and, and proponents where we've said, okay, this one looks like a mess. You know, there are too many sub-issues. Um, we, need, we need to narrow this down. Um, we would like to know in the proposal that you have a sense of which sub-issues you want them to follow. And those will be used against you later in the process because we then say, okay, the facts you've written are taking QP1 in about 50 different directions. They only have about 10 pages of a memorial and about 10 minutes of an oral argument. Um, how are we going to cabin this and, and, and bring it into, into space? Uh, but that's really why we want to know the sub-issues. Because any one of these cases, as Jessup teams the world over have discovered, can be argued a hundred different ways. You know, you've got different paths you can follow uh, to to get to your prayer for relief, to get to what you want the court to decide. And we want to know from the authors early on which of those is your sort of mainline argument and which of those are other sub-issues that you'd like the students to have to explore, even if they're not, in the end, winning arguments. Um, Mostly so that we we know which path the 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 compromis or the problem is is going to end up taking, but I, you know, we don't we don't dock people for uh, for not giving us enough sub issues. For example, uh, this is not a quiz. Let me give a concrete example of what I think Michael was just referring to. Um, in human rights problems, generally speaking, the the plot involves some poor downtrodden minority that's getting abused by the government um, and um, you know is under goods being deprived of uh, you know the kinds of things that are in the ICCPR well that's all well and good but if we're going to raise that issue in the ICJ we have to address the question of standing the party that's going to be raising the issue has to have standing to do it so it can't just be a minority within one country it has to be a connection to the applicant country who is raising this issue on behalf of the poor downtrodden minority. So that's not easy. And so simply to say, I want to explore whether such and such kind of treatment constitutes torture and inhumane um, treatment within the CAT, um, that's sure, that's an interesting topic. Um, you know, we can have all kinds of nuances around it. But unless you acknowledge in the proposal that we have to deal with the question of standing or the issue that I want to reach doesn't even get before the court, that's where um, the, the question of sub-issues, so to speak, becomes very important. Um, if we're going to have to argue standing, and then we're going to have to argue some issue about the legitimacy of the government, and only then can we get to the question of You've used up most of the compromis on one issue. That isn't going to work. Just as an illustration of what I think Michael was getting at. No, thank you, Stephen and, and Michael, for the answer. Leslie, uh, so Asaf already alluded to this theoretical, as he mentioned, list of experts. Uh, I, I want to come to you and ask what exactly is this list? You know what? What does it entail, and and specifically, if there are any more details to add on that front? Yeah. Well, I think it was it was introduced as part of what 
ILSA was asking to be submitted by um, proponents. Um, you know, a few years ago, I think in, in connection with moving away from requiring full draft proposals. And I think it serves a, a valid purpose <clears throat> because it's a little bit of a reality check that the topics being proposed have experts, um, that there are, that there is an expertise, that there's a body of law that has at least developed somewhat around the topics more generally, which is something that I think we, we need to sort of know that there is some expertise. And then I think it's also a little bit of a, a double check on, on the proponent that they're sufficiently immersed in those topics that they are able to identify who may have expertise in on those particular topics. And then finally, it allows the organization, um, if they choose, to consult those experts. I know that um, I know that authors that we have worked with have consulted one or more of the experts that they initially identified in the course of their drafting to run something by them or have them review an early draft of a particular issue. Um, and then there may be occasions when we have a, you know, a, a full draft by August and we need to have an outsider review the problem that also happens. And some of the candidates that we might consider asking at that point may be um, one of the experts that would have been identified. So I think it serves a, a, a real valid purpose. And I would certainly encourage anyone submitting a proposal to give real thought to who, who you know, has expertise on, on those particular topics being proposed. Could I add not just legal topics, but factual ones as well. So if we're having a problem about aquifers, for example, raising very interesting questions of international law, but what's an aquifer? Do you know what an aquifer is? I, I think I have a vague idea. How deep is it? How much water does it contain? Uh, what, what is its relationship to the land that is using that water for irrigation? And so on. So, and many times we have had at the last minute the question, you know, would someone really do that? Um, is that response something that someone versed in the field, in the storyline, someone versed in the field would actually do? Uh, we had a, a couple of years ago a question that involved a, a rogue airplane. Right. The Javid, the Javid problem. I was just thinking of that. What really happens when an airplane begins a what looks like a commercial flight from a commercial airport heading in another direction, but hasn't filed a flight plan? What happens in the real world? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and I dare say, um, you know, law professors don't know answers to questions like that. But there are people who do. And we need we, it was, it's helpful to us. If you have already thought that out and know that there is an expert on air traffic control or on aquifers or on computer systems, not necessarily a lawyer, but just somebody who can provide a fact check, that's really important. Yeah. And I would, I would just add to that. I mean, that's the, the, the airplane example in the Javid problem came right to mind because that was an example where the author that year, uh, Peter, if I recall, um, went off to NATO aviators and and said, okay, what happens in this scenario? And at the same time, the editorial committee were calling air traffic control officials and, other, you know, U.S. naval aviators and, you know, so on and so forth 
I am sure that we contributed to the CIA or the NSA's chatter that year because so many of us were asking different officials. So what would happen if a plane did X, Y, and Z? Um, the other one, the other one famously, or not so famously was the year we had the mox pellets. So we had these, um, we had these byproducts. Uh, you know, everybody's got the mox plant cases. We ended up in the 11th hour having to determine whether or not mox pellets float in seawater because it mattered, you know, to the problem. And again, the author that year happened to know a material scientist who worked in this area. So, I mean, it just goes to show so much of the problem turns on things that are legal, but so many other things turn on important points of fact that you'd, you'd better know how to get a hold of or suggest who we might reach out to, uh, to, to fill in those gaps. And Michael, following up on that, uh, so for young practitioners who might not know people, let's say in air traffic control, or, you know, who, who might not know people who know what an aquifer is. So, so is it the fact that they need to point out experts, let's say, go to Google and say, here are the three experts on this issue. So how does this process work for someone who's writing a proposal and who might not, let's say, be very socially active and know a lot of people? Um, so I will say, I hope, given my first point earlier about pick something you know, pick something you're doing something about, I should hope that any author isn't having to Google the experts in the area, you know. Now, that being said, if you are a young practitioner, you are probably not on first name terms with or on a first name basis with members of the ILC who've published extensively in the area or been, you know, reporters on on this area or, you know, legends of international law, monsters of international law who are your heroes or who have the jobs that you'd like to have one day. Well, good. Let's you and Ilsa together make this your opportunity to meet them. So, and that happens every year as well. I get, you know, I, I, we get a proposal from somebody and, and they sort of apologetically say, you know, and Joan Donahue or and you know, whoever it might be. And then they parentheses, uh, you know, I don't know this person. I hope you're not assuming that I can, I've just got this person on speed dial. We know that, you know, you're telling us these are the people who've published in this area or who are expert in this area. Um, and if it comes to it, I'm happy to get on my keyboard or get on the phone and say, you know, we, we have a Jessup problem that's right up your alley this year, Your Excellency. Uh, could you have a look at it? And even better, could you do a quick Zoom call with our authors? They're, they're lost in the weeds on something here. And, and that has happened. You know, we've had authors who have sat down with their heroes, virtually at least, and have had the conversation, you know, I don't think that's going to work. Here's the idea. And they are just as proud as they can be when they come back to me and say, well, we talked to his excellency and he told us that we need to do this, this, and this to make it work. Wonderful. And by the way, now, you know, that person. So then that, you know, that's, that's just good for your career. Just as a concrete no, it doesn't have to be somebody you can call on personally. I just want to give a, a quick example of that. So um, my, I, I still am uh, a huge fan of Simon Chesterman. Simon Chesterman is the vice provost of, National University of Singapore, when I submitted my problem in 2016, he was my biggest hero of all time because he was one of the only people writing about the international law of espionage. Um, not to mention that he's also a novelist, so he writes these amazing books, and he also writes law review articles. Um, 
in, um, and I read some of the books too, and I, I'm just a big fan of him. And then this thing happened, and not only did I consulted him during the, the writing of the 2016 Frost Trials, but then I had the privilege in the quarterfinals to sit next to him as he was the, the main judge in the room. And then having Simon Chesterman judge the problem that you wrote, for me, was, I just didn't ask a single question around, just stared at Simon Chesterman the entire round. And he became a friend since then, and it really influenced my career. So I know what we're going to get about what's the benefits of doing this thing. One ex beautiful example of that. And, and might I just plug the podcast and say Simon Chesterman has also been on this podcast. So if you're interested in mm -hmm. listening to his episode, you can scroll down and you'll find him. Uh, so, so Michael, coming back to you on statistics on, on the proposals specifically, uh, typically, uh, on average, how many proposals does Ilsa receive in a year? And, and I know Leslie will have insights on this as well as the longest serving executive director of Ilsa. So Michael, starting with you and then over to Leslie. Sure. I mean, I, I can tell you the average, but it wouldn't mean anything without the standard deviation. We've had years where we've received one proposal. We've had years where we've received more than a dozen. Um, the bulk of the years we received between three and six, um, and Leslie can correct me on on years that I've got a gap there, um, but, uh, but there are years, especially years where something big happens in the world, we will just get a flood of proposals that are variations on a theme. Um, last year, two years ago, last year, um, uh, the problem that's coming up, we received a ton of shooting down of weather balloon proposals um, where, you know, four different compromises whose main topic was something different. One might have been espionage, one might have been human rights, blah, blah, blah. but they all had one QP devoted to is it legal, is it lawful to shoot down another country's weather balloon slash is it, is it lawful to send your weather balloon over another country? Um, and of course, with other things, when one country invades another country, we always see a spike in proposals around that. Um, and so, um, uh, it's, it, it varies heavily from year to year. I had the good fortune one year of submitting a proposal when no other proposals were submitted. So I got it by default. Um, but other years, other years, we've had more than a dozen. And I remember, I remember those are the, those are the bad years. And, and Leslie, any thoughts on this particular point, but also on the diversity of the authors and typically how has that looked like in, in the years past? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I would echo what Michael's, Michael said generally about the numbers, um, but I would disagree with him about the more proposals being the bad years. I always felt like it was an honor for the organization to receive I think the most we ever had was 14. And I was excited by that because it meant that we were reaching people that we had never reached before who had probably never thought that they were capable of authoring a Jessup problem and who might have seen someone like Asaf Lubin and chosen in 2015 when he was still an LLM student and he was unknown to anyone on the board and that we took, a, took sort of a risk with going with him and it paid off in spades. And now suddenly the next year we have a dozen and the year after that we have 13 and, and you know, it, it, it like makes a difference and it opens the community up. And during my time as executive director, it was really important to me to send the message that this is not an insider job, that this is not a private club, that this is something that we want to encourage new people to join. Because if we didn't, didn't do that, we would have never met 
SF Lubin, we would have never met Peter Zhang. Um, and so that was one of the things that was important to me was to not just have, you know, there, we obviously have some incredibly talented repeat authors, um, but, you know, for the future of the Jessup, it's valuable to have new uh, authors enter the picture and learn how to create a problem and have experience on the editorial committee. So in terms of diversity of the authors, I think it's really important for us to take that into account to make sure that we are looking, you know, outside of the United States and um, prioritizing authors from year to year that are coming from different parts of the world who may be studying international law in different systems and bringing some new perspectives to the table. So I do think that the organization has been quite successful in opening this process up a little bit and really taking into account the value that new perspectives can bring to the Jessup. Yeah, absolutely no disagreement here. When I say those are the bad years, it's really just a matter of looking through 14 proposals at once and trying to decide among them. Um, one of the things that we have seen to toot Leslie's horn a bit over the last 10 years um, is uh, a lot of uh, brand new authors, not just submitting proposals, but winning, you know, and so to speak, becoming the author, um, and then also sticking with it and staying on as uh, authors in subsequent years or joining the editorial committee or helping us with selection of future compromise. Um, a couple of years ago when we had brand new authors, uh, uh, the, the three from The Hague, uh, who submitted uh, a couple of years ago, we actually had recent new authors, one of whom is here, mentoring them and saying, okay, this is what the process is going to be like. And this is what, uh, and, and so it's great uh, to get, uh, get those people involved. And that is one of the big things we try to do with this process is to bring in people from different parts of the world, different areas of public international law, uh, different walks of life, practitioners versus academics versus uh, jurists versus civil servants, all of the above, you know, and that's that's what makes this competition so interesting and so different from one year to the next. Absolutely. And uh, I know we've already discussed this tangentially uh, in, in quite a few questions, but I still want to address it directly, which is the question of developing a moot problem. So, Michael, to start off with you, Let's say a, a proposal has been ex, uh, accepted. What are the timelines and next steps for the author? So the proposal gets accepted, and uh, you get a phone call from usually from from me or from Leslie or whatever, saying it's it's been accepted. And the first thing you need to do on a panicked turnaround time is come up with the one to two sentences that the chairperson of the board of directors of ILSA will read at the championship round on Saturday at the end of the international rounds. And in years where that decision gets made at the board meeting on Saturday morning in April, and the championship round is at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon, that is, that is a lot of panic. You know, oh, we have, we won. You know, I remember the, uh, uh, I, I remember one group of authors from Brazil, let me put it that way, who, you know, got the call and then, you know, sort of froze for two hours. They, they you know, they were stunned. I, you know, Stephen needs, or whoever, Michael Scharf or whoever it was, needs to say something. Um, 
We need we need those two sentences. We need those. The 2016 Jessup problem will be or will concern or whatever. So that's the immediate thing. And then typically we give the the author or authors uh, two to four weeks to put together a first full compromise. And that comes that that order comes with feedback from the board and feedback from the editorial or from the review committee, uh, where they say, "Okay, QP four, we're just not seeing it. You know, prove it to us. You know, walk us through the steps. QP one, we're not sure how you're going to exhaust local remedies and establish standing. You know, by assumption of the claim. So uh, make sure to focus on that." We don't like this whole subplot about seaweed, um, so either ditch it or whatever. And sometimes it comes with suggestions. You know, have you read the Myanmar case? Have you read whatever it is? Uh, give a look at that and get us something. In the meantime, while the authors are working on that, the executive office is putting together something we've referred to a couple of times already, the editorial committee. And that's usually six to ten people uh, who... Uh, many of whom former authors themselves, many of them former bench memorandum authors, uh, many of them longtime coaches and judges uh, who spend the whole summer essentially arguing with the authors. Um, and so that first draft goes out to the editorial committee and the editorial committee reads it. And I don't think I'm giving anything away here. Uh, Stephen throws his hands in the air and says, that's it. You know, this is the year the Jessup dies. There is no way we can possibly this this problem. This how did we how did we get here? Why did the board ever approve these topics? Um, um, and uh, and the and the rest of the editorial committee comes back and says, um, you know, we have these this list of concerns, and it's often multiple pages of concerns, and we don't even we're not even redlining at that point. You know, it's it would not be useful to mark up the documents and say fix things. The authors always want to see. Give us the red line. No, it's usually a memo or more often a conversation with me where I summarize the findings of the editorial committee. You know, they don't like this. This is terrible. This this works. We love this part. You know, stick with that and more. This transition doesn't work. Then there's a second draft, usually in June, um, and there we start to see some of the pieces fall into place. And then over the course of the summer, every couple of weeks, you're expected to have another draft. The you know you send a draft out. The committee takes a week or so with it, gets some comments back, and then you've got a week to ten days to get the next draft out. So there are summers where we have seven or eight drafts going back and forth. Um, if it's a huge redraft, we give you a little extra time. And then in at the end of August, beginning of September. The executive office, as we call it, takes the pen away. So by then, the authors are satisfied that they've done everything they can do with it. The executive, the editorial committee is convinced that they have done everything they can do with it. Uh, the executive office then takes it strictly for proofreading. And so every comma, every name of an airport, to pick an example from this year, um, every word in there tense, so on and so forth, uh, we sweat over. And then working with outside consultants, in, including people on this call, uh, we also look at things like voice. You know, would an ambassador speak that way? Would an attorney general speak that way? Is this the kind of thing that a president would say? Again, not trying to, at this point in the editing process, no longer trying to shift the equities or shift the balance of the case, but really just trying to make sure that the document holds together. 
And that typically takes four to five months. And then, you know, a day before we release, um, we have a deep breath and say, okay, habemus comprime. Four to five, four to five weeks, right? Or days. Months. The entire process I'm talking about. Okay, yeah. I thought you meant the taking the pen. Oh no no that 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 typically starts the the taking the pen away is is a couple of weeks you know we take end of August and then we're we're sweating it right up until the day we we release it yeah uh, circle back to the point uh, Stephen I, I I think you will, you you'd like to add something I was just going to say just one sentence I I can't think of an instance over the forty plus years that I've been doing this in which we did not at the in that last process catch a date inconsistency that is something happened in response to something that hasn't happened yet um you know and, and if, we, if we didn't catch it, it it's because we missed it yeah, that's right they're always there they're always there and they're and they're the bane of the editorial committee's existence but the, yeah. Anyway, okay. I mean, in our in, over the last two years in our office, Stephanie Corzantes has become our expert at what day of the week is this, you know. And so, Stephanie will go through the entire compromis and say, "All right, but the kidnapping occurred on a Friday, um, and the attorney general gave his statement on a Sunday." Now, I don't know what religion this this country is, but the attorney general is putting in a long weekend, given that this isn't big news yet. So we look at it and say, okay, maybe not a Friday to a Sunday. Let's make that a Tuesday to a Thursday. Okay, we'll change that. And Stephanie Stephanie has a spreadsheet where it's, you know, what day of the week is it? Um, when did Passover fall that year? When did Easter fall that year? Um, you know, uh, when is Ramadan that year? So on and so forth. Um, not so not for any sensitivities or anything, but just for the realism. You know, no, the United Nations would not be doing this in a September uh, because all the presidents are in New York, all the prime ministers are in New York at UN week giving their statements. There's, there's, you know, the UN isn't going to be hosting a different, you know, thing in our plot. So let's move that to October or November or December. So yeah, that's the kind of things we sweat in September. I, I love that we're having this discussion because, uh, you know, as, as participants and coaches and judges, we tend to, you know, glance over these nuances. So I'm glad we're finally getting the chance to you know michael it's it's only it's only a handful of very hard working students that actually find this out but you know i'm so frustrated we, we <laughs> thought we thought that the year that we had you know the, the vatican issuing a proclamation on on easter sunday or something that every team in the world would rise up and say but that year in 1961 was east that that day was easter and the pope was not making a statement at that hour he was saying mass at saint peter's and we're sure that every student in the world is is giving that level so i'm i'm shocked and appalled no no, no. maybe maybe the others aren't as lazy as me you know i mean as judges we get the bench memorandum which will come to and then you know you, you don't have to look elsewhere although you should i i personally like recommend you should uh so so having said that uh I'd, I'd now turn to Asaf. Asaf, from the perspective of an author, what were some of the challenges, hurdles that you faced in the process of, you know, developing this mood problem alongside the editorial committee and Stephen panicking, as as Michael mentioned? So the the first thing that needs to be clear is that you need to invest significant time 
and energy into this process. It's going to be a long, it's going to be a complex, and at times it's going to be a very frustrating process. Um, and you have to understand that that is part of, you know, this is a high stakes, high reward sort of situation. There's a lot of benefits that come. We'll talk about those benefits later, but it also comes with a lot of work. Um, one aspect of that was demonstrated by Michael. Michael said that there were six to 10 people on that editorial committee. Um, it's six to 10 people that feel like 20. They will have a lot of opinions. They will disagree with each other. Um, you will receive all that feedback. Michael will often do a good, a good job of serving as the interlocutor and trying to translate a lot of the sentiment and tone of the editorial committee to the author and then vice versa. But, but it will come with you needing to respond and react and, and, and be at the same time, you know, you know a, a, a parallel context to think about is the review process for publications where you submit a paper and you get reviewer number two who really hates the paper or hates the book proposal. And you need to develop a tough skin. You need to, and I think that they, these are all skills that you develop as an author throughout this process. I think I am a better academic because I did the Jessup as an author. I really believe that. Another aspect of this that is a struggle, because you've asked me to focus on the challenges, you want a whimsical story. You have this idea in your head that this will, I, I, I'll give you one example. When I wrote a 2016 problem, I wanted to be it to read like a spy novel. So one of the things that I'm glad we ended up keeping is the fact that this news anchor is not revealed to be a spy until paragraph 25. So, so in my head, there was this moment where the spy no novel kind of reaches its climax. But, but, but people come in with all these ambitions, and the reality is the ambitions are put to the side. There's a, there's a goal at hand. The goal is to write a Jessa problem, not to write your big spy novel. And so we need to do that work of condensing where it needs to be condensed. It can be too long. Uh, focusing where it needs to focus, making it sound real, as, as already alluded to. And that, again, requires you to give away the pen and give up not being married to particular things. The other big one is the legal issues. Every single year I wrote, the two, those two years, uh, uh, both times, there was a new QP that I created, we created from scratch. I was told, this QP doesn't work start from scratch and we had to create a whole new qp you need to be willing to do that don't be married to your four uh legal issues and the last last thing i'll say is that i think that um there needs to be an understanding that no matter what we try to catch throughout this entire four or five month process including in those final two weeks we will not catch everything and even if we thought we did in the clarifications and corrections once this hits the litigation floor, it will take a life of its own. So in the 2016 problem, for example, the final round before the three ICJ judges, there was this argument that the final round winning team made that I just never intended for them to make. I just thought it was wrong. No, that was not under the way I envisioned it. It doesn't matter what I envision. It matters how it plays. And so that's you know, a frustration you might live with, but understand that just like with any good piece of art, it takes a life of its own once it's in the real world. Sean, I think what you're hearing from all of us um, is that one thing for which the Jessup is known worldwide, um, aside from the experience and the, the networking and the fraternity and the cult-like following that we've developed, is the quality of these problems. Um, and if you look at, I'm, I don't mean to 
poke a finger at anyone, but if you look at the problems in other international moot courts, I think you will see a massive quality difference. Um, there are no internal contradictions in our problems. There are no things that would make you say, no, wait a minute, the UN ambassador would never say a thing like that. You know, the, the, the drilling would never take place in a location like that. You never see that because we've looked at all of it and we've put our, our stamp on it. And there are two ways in which we have done that over the years, which everyone I suspect knows about, but just to make it completely crystal clear. There is always in a Jessup problem an organization or a body whose initials are ILSA. Always. We started that tradition probably 20, 25 years ago. Um, and it's a it's a little thumbprint that we have. And another one that we came up with very recently, which may not be as well known. You know, we always have a problem with with um putting in facts that come from reliable sources without needing to develop at great length why those sources are reliable. We just need to be able to say that something happened and we don't want students worrying about how do you know it happened. So usually there is a, a, a press outlet somewhere in the problem, a, a, a newspaper, a, a, a podcast, uh, or a blogger or somebody who is the witness to these events. Well, about, Leslie, it was on your watch, I think, what was it, maybe eight or 10 years ago, we began the tradition that the newspaper that is that provides the authoritative statement of facts somewhere in the problem is the hometown newspaper of the team that won the World Cup the previous year. That's a Jessup thing. If you see a problem like that, it's a Jessup problem, and it has that seal of approval, that thumbprint on it. And we're very proud of that. It's taken a lot of years to develop it, and we intend to continue to do that. No, I would I I I I would be remiss as as the current holder of the office of ex executive director and custodian of this organization if I didn't point out that the reason we're able to do that is because every year we've got authors who are willing to commit five to six months of their lives with no pay um, and all kinds of other things, um, and an editorial committee, which frequently involves new members, frequently involves the same people who did it the previous year, um, who are willing to devote five to six months of their lives. And there's not a lot of competitions in the world that can do that. And we talk to the other large moot court competitions in the world and, and some of the smaller international ones, it is really hard to find a regular cast of characters who are willing to say, oh, summer's coming. I guess it's time for me to uh, to put everything else aside and focus on a Jessup Compromis for the next four months. Um, so we are incredibly grateful. We have always relied on the kindness of FOJs. And, uh, and I, I know when Leslie was in charge, when... Uh, all of my predecessors, um, we are immensely grateful to those volunteers, including the people on this call or on this podcast, uh, for for their service. Uh, that's what makes that possible, and that's what gives rise to these folkways and traditions and uh, and sort of handed down from year to year uh, wisdom that you know every year's Jessup problem is a little better than the year before.
Absolutely. And and speaking of the editorial committee, which puts in so much effort, Leslie, could you shed some light on what the editorial committee is? And specifically, I, I guess what I'm curious about is its composition, for example, how many members in a, in a given year, uh, how are they selected and what are their roles and functions? The last point I know has been answered tangentially, but I'd also like to hear from you on, on that as well. Yeah, um, that is, a, a, in my experience, was a, a, a bit of a dynamic process that varied some from year to year. And um, it was, it's just given the process and given how many, how much input we sort of need from different people, we always have at least five or six people who serve in that role on the editorial committee and sometimes more like eight or nine. Um, I think Michael referred to that earlier. And um, we do we do try to have former authors serve on on the, that committee because it's so valuable to have had the experience of authoring a Jessup problem when you're commenting and giving advice to the um, current author and evaluating the current problem. Um, and then I think I think we always give some thought to integrating new people and introducing new people to that process, um, whether it's the first time author from the year before, or whether it's someone who ha- who may have submitted several problem proposals and is clearly on the verge of being selected, but hasn't been selected. But we want to give them sort of that first, that front row seat to the process to sort of help them get to the point where they could be an author. Um, there's so much potential that we see in some of the proposals that don't get chosen. So that experience can be valuable where someone wants to serve. And then um, we always take into account the diversity in that respect as well. So we want members on the editorial committee from different backgrounds, um, from different parts of the world, um, who will bring different perspectives, uh, who have you know some, some from academia, some from private practice, some maybe judges. And, um, you know, we have some who may be even new to judging the Jessup in some respects, maybe established practitioners who haven't actually judged, and then some who are inside friends of the Jessup, who know the Jessup inside, inside and out. So again, it's a, it's a bit of a bringing some diversity to the table, but then also bringing a lot of expertise to the whole drafting of Jessup problems, which is super important in that in that committee. So I hope that's helpful, but that's. Absolutely, no, I think that's a very helpful answer for our listeners. And Asaf, I know this has been answered and it seems like it is a very taxing uh, process for the author to go through, you know, the rounds of edits and, you know, all the other things that come with the process of being an author. But could you also contextualize it? And what I mean by that is, how much sleep would an author lose uh, if they have a day job? How would that be affected? So if you could put it in, in in real life terms as to how taxing the the entire process can be, I think that could be a helpful uh, reference point. Yeah, I mean, authors come in all shapes and sizes, so so there's no question that their um, interaction with the process will be sui generis to them. That said, um, the it's ima- imagine building a 1000 piece puzzle. And so you need moments of inspiration 
oh, they've just given me a thorny, the editorial committee just given me a thorny question that proves that my entire pleading is I envision it just doesn't work. Now I need to go back to the drawing book, uh, uh, room and figure out how I revise the narrative, revise the legal issue to make it work again, while not hindering all the other pieces that I've already perfected. That that's that's an art, that's a talent, and that takes time to perfect, and and it will require you to sleep on it one day and then come back to it and be inspired in some. Oh, I in fact, again, I'll just keep using that spy story. So. I watched elementary. So if you, if you recall that that year had a, something to do with bees and something to do with, uh, I was watching elementary. It's a TV show one day as, as a way of venting from the, doing the Jessup stuff. And there was an episode all about bees. Like that was the source of inspiration for figuring it. And it connected for me in that moment. Oh my God, that's how I will do it. That, that, that you know, it's, it's, so it's just like any other creative process. Um, I will tell you that I've since been serving on the editorial committee for many years now, and I can tell you that from the editorial committee side, that is too a process. We need to review this again and again, and every time we review it, we come back, we identify new challenges and new problems. Um, uh, so, so there is this iterative exchange back and forth between us and the author, between the author and, and the editorial committee, that is what's advancing the piece each time, but it does mean that each time you start anew with a new draft and a new set of issues and a new fresh of eye, set of eyes, uh, and it grows from there. And, and Michael, if I could just jump to you. So typically in, the, in my limited time of judging the Jessup, whenever I reach out to students, the applicant speakers or the agents would say, well, the respondents have it easy this year. And the respondents would say, well, the applicants have it easy this year. So as, as part of this entire exercise, how does the editorial committee and the author ensure, you know, the, the sides are typically balanced for the most part, at least? Well, uh, explicitly, uh, honestly, um, we have every summer that I've been involved with the problem as author or as a member of the editorial committee, there has come some point in the summer where the editorial committee has, you know, after asking nicely, after insinuating, after suggesting, finally says to the author, please walk us through the mainline arguments, counter arguments, and citations for applicants' argument on QP2. Now tell us what respondent is going to say in reply to it. Now tell us what applicant is going to say, and you better be able to go down two levels or we don't have a QP here. And it is one of the struggles that we have, you know, ever, as Stephen said at the beginning, the problem has to be balanced in the sense that everybody has to have something to say, everybody has to have something to argue, and everybody has to be able to get some traction in their problem. And so um, as far as what the community does, we ask. You know, please tell us on QP3, uh, what do you anticipate? You know, it looks to us, the committee, like respondent has a has an easy walk of this. What on earth is applicant going to say? And they give it to us. And and then the committee, uh, you know, which is a group of people very passionate about the Jessup and about Moose, says, yeah, we don't. We, that's what we were afraid of. We don't buy that. That's not a good. Let's add some more facts to this, or let's let's tip the scales a little bit, or let's try a different. QP, um, as a as an author, then internally, um, it's it's very easy when you have co-authors. 
you know, and, and Asaf just did this last year, you have conversations with your co-author and you say, okay, what is applicant going to say here? You role play respondent for me or role play the judge for me. Here's what I think, but agent, what's your source for that? So on and so forth. But that is deliberate. It is part of the process. It is baked into it. I have worked with co-authors a couple of times, but I also have the tremendous advantage as an editor and uh, and as an author of having a 15-year-old child and an 11-year-old child who are very good at asking, right, daddy, but why? Okay, right, daddy, but why? Why would why would the prime minister say that? Okay, and, and my 15-year-old has gotten to the point, having spent enough time with Jessup's, that, uh, excuse me, agent, um, what's your source for that? Um, and so it's, but it is, it, it's a good question because that is the entire process exists in part to make sure that everybody has multiple levels of responses, that it's not simply the applicant finding the secret smoking gun that we've hidden somewhere in the problem or somewhere in the universe of legal research. And once they find that the argument is over, if that exists, we've failed. Uh-huh. I, I hope that. After this, uh, some of the participants and coaches that might be listening in are, you know, put at some level of ease as as to their conspiracy theories of this year is particularly tilted a certain way. So let's hope that that doesn't happen. But I, I know it will uh, in in my limited experience with Jessup. Uh, but I guess that's the that's the fun of it. And uh, Leslie, coming back to you. So the problem has been released. Uh, every single or rather the 4,000 students around the world are going through it, you know, line by line, trying to pick out any inaccuracies, trying to pick out contradictions, trying to pick out what arguments they make. All sorts of thoughts are going around. They don't know what they'll argue at that spot. But then comes the corrections and clarifications. And there have been times when, I know in 2022, I can't remember which argument, but there was this one thing which we said, wow, this completely changes everything everything that we thought we were going to argue. So so walk us through the process and specifically, what does that look like internally within the editorial committee with the author and, and how that goes uh, into play? Yeah, so after we've released the problem, then we sit back and we wait for feedback to make its way back to us. And we, as you probably know, actually open up this process by soliciting requests from participants for corrections or clarifications. And so we collect those over the next, I don't know what it is, six weeks or so. Um, And we assemble all of those. And we put together a big spreadsheet where, you know, we remove duplicates and we place them in a spreadsheet and we basically reconvene the author and the editorial committee to, you know, comment on the suggestions that we're getting from participants. And um, there are times where they're in the, in the weeks leading up to the release of the problem, or even during the course of the summer drafting, that there's sort of an open acknowledgement that there is going to be something that we have to clarify. And we know we have to clarify it, but we're not ready to do it. We're almost purposely putting it off so that we have a little bit more time to see how everything else settles into place, um, where we we sort of deliberately avoid 
making a call on something that doesn't, that wasn't, that was sort of the exception rather than the rule, but that does happen sometimes. And then, you know, the, the rest is like really utilizing the, the minds of the students that are going to work on the problem and sort of expanding the inputs um, and get, getting it from them and then taking a real look as to what do we need to clarify? What do we choose to clarify? Um, what do we decide that we're not going to clarify? Because there's some legitimate inputs that come from that process that we just decline to address. And, you know, that, you know, someone else may choose to address them, but we've decided that it's not essential to the course of the Jessup problem. So it is a really critical moment in the Jessup season. Um, and that is why the author is directly involved in that and the editorial committee is reconvened for purposes of putting that together. And so we kind of have like a mini drafting process around that, where once we decide which of the uh, questions or comments that we've received are going to be clarified, then we have someone, sometimes it's the author, sometimes it's a member of the editorial committee, put together a, f a first draft of the clarifications, and then it goes through a sort of a miniature round of, of review process, just like the problem did. Can I just, just say a few more things on that? Because I, I do think that that's a question that comes up a lot. Um, so A, just so you know, there's hundreds of these requests for clarification that come in every year. Um, and there, it's, a, it's a big Excel spreadsheet that we have to sift through as we're going through this. And we try to identify what is the gravity of a particular request by the number of students who have raised a particular concern. The other thing I wanted to highlight is what you have identified as curveballs or things that completely change the problem is something I hear a lot about. It's not that some of these are intended to do that. It's more so the case that there's particular esoteric areas of the law that we might not be exposed to. So I'll give you one example from last year. Last year, one of the clarifications was about an Article 96, Subsection 3 declaration to AP1. Now, I didn't even know the AP1 had a declaration mechanism like that. Um, it was rarely used, rarely recognized, um, and yet students started asking about it. And it's that through those questions where, oh, this could be a really useful tool for us to solve a bunch of problems that we had already been grappling with that we could have never thought of ourselves. Because only someone who's invested into the research of this for months and months across, you know, that's the benefit of the brain hive and the outsourcing uh, that Leslie was talking about in this context. And then the last thing I'll mention is that um, there's a lot of times that we get asked questions that we just know if we answer them, despite our desire to, if we answer them, it will change the balance of equities between the parties in significant ways. So students get really upset that they don't get their clarifications clarified. But so sometimes it's just impossible to clarify while, while maintaining the integrity of the overall problem. Well, that integrity has to do with the format of the Jessup problem to begin with. Most times, the Jessup problem is a stipulated set of facts submitted by both sides to the International Court of Justice for resolution. Well, there's no point in asking us, was the election of the president of the applicant state free and fair? Because the respondent isn't going to agree to that in all likelihood. Um, and it would be insulting, actually, to ask, will you stipulate to the fact that our elections are free and fair? It would never happen. It would never happen in the real world. So we decline a lot of clarification requests simply because 
and we say this in the in, in the standard form introduction to the clarification, these are not things that the parties will be prepared to stipulate. We remind you that this is an agreed statement of facts and the clarifications are meant to be of the same family and not um, some sort of higher level neutral party looking at things and putting the pieces in the right order. That's not what it's about. And Michael, before we jump to concluding the episode, I'll, I'll club two questions for you. Uh, first one concerns the selection of uh, batch of materials and, and how that's done. And then secondly, if you could walk us through the process of the drafting of the bench memorandum. So the basic materials, the first release of the basic materials comes from the authors um, and to a lesser extent from the editorial committee and from the executive office. Those of us who've been living with the problem all spring and all summer. Um, and it's, it's basically the articles or the treaties or the treatises, uh, the primary and secondary sources that we've been using all summer and all spring. You know, and it's not all of them, but it's the sort of in order to understand this problem, what would a team that has no library, uh, has access to the Internet and has a public international law professor who, you know, taught them their first semester of, of public international law, what would they need to understand what on earth is going on with this problem? So it always includes any primary sources mentioned directly in the Jessup problem. And then we go one level beyond that, and it's sort of what is the seminal article or the seminal commentary on this topic? You know, and, and some years it's four different articles, you know, one on QP1, one on QP2, one on QP3, one on QP4. Until recently, we had what we called the second batch of basic materials, and that was originally designed to be suggested by students. And so we would ask the Jessup students of the world, please let us know if you find articles that you think other teams should uh, should be using, should find. And we had years where that was very successful, and we had other years where the students were very competitive, and you know we don't want them to find our our silver bullet. Um, but this year, um, or actually last year, we replaced that with a sort of rolling basis, uh, because it turns out that. Uh, there are a lot of you out there, judges, coaches, competitors, volunteers, who eat, drink, sleep, and breathe this stuff. And all of a sudden, in mid-September, I get an email from one of our Pakistan FOJs saying, oh my goodness, you must have pulled this right out of uh, my colleague's uh, article that he wrote two years ago. Uh, it looks just like it. And we look at it and say, wow, that's amazing. Well, we now just place it into the basic materials and we inform the teams, check in periodically because we are constantly replacing them. And so now we will, working with the author or the authors, we will uh, review everything that gets suggested to us and on a rolling basis, just keep adding things to it. So I think, I think this year, for example, we've added five or six things to the basic materials based on suggestions from coaches, teams, judges all over the world. And As for your second question, the, the bench memorandum. Um, so it is certainly, uh, speaking for the two executive directors on this call, it is certainly our fondest wish every year, uh, and I will hold our authors in the future to this as, as well as I can, that the authors also take 
responsibility for the bench memorandum. They know the problem backwards and forwards. Um, they have sweated every detail with the editorial committee. They know where this is going. Um, and so I would like going forward authors to consider the bench memorandum to be part of your responsibilities. That has not always been the case in the past. Um, by and large, it's been true. And oftentimes we as authors want to write the bench memorandum because we don't want somebody else messing with our problem. You know, I have an idea of what the important cases are. I don't want somebody else swooping in and taking credit for all of this great research I've done for the last three months. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. There have been exceptions uh, because life catches up with you. Authors have, have things that come up in their lives and they can't do it. But uh, you should count on taking a couple weeks off um, after the problem comes out and then getting started on a first draft of the bench memorandum and then taking a breath during the corrections and clarifications. But by December, having version 1.0 of the bench memorandum out. And then we get the memorials, and invariably, we learn things from the memorials. You know, there are arguments that the students come back with that we never anticipated. So I always like to, and I know the authors do as well, I always like to, ungraded, look at a dozen memorials from diverse parts of the world. I wonder what, you know, uh, the French team is saying about this. I wonder what the Singaporean team, I wonder what the Kenyan team, I wonder what just to get a sense of different arguments that are coming up. And we usually, after the memorials come back, come out with version two of the bench memo. And then after the national rounds have come through, we always come out with version three of the bench memo as judges come back to us and say, hey, are you aware that the students have decided that piracy is a red herring? You know, it's just, and this happened one year where the students realized they could get to where they were going without arguing piracy at all. And so we had to completely reconfigure things for the international rounds and tell the judges, you know, although one could make points about piracy, most respondents choose not to go that route. Instead, here is here is what we do. So, um, and, and you're still engaged with the bench memo up to and including, you know, a couple of weeks before the international rounds. Uh, thanks, Michael. So as I... As I see the time, I understand that this is the longest episode in 46-something episodes that we have recorded on the podcast. But I think this is one which deserved to you know, get the time and attention that it did. And I thank you, of course, uh, for, for tuning in uh, and for answering my questions so patiently. But also to our listeners who have stuck around for this long. So I'll go one by one to to have some concluding thoughts from each of our guests. And Asaf, starting with you, but I'd also like for you to give an elevator pitch on why people should write uh, a moot problem for the Jessup. And then we'll, we'll slowly transition all the way to Michael at the very end. Well, thank you so much for convening us and for giving us an opportunity to speak about uh, the, the way the cookie crumbles in Jessup creation, because I think that it opens up a, a vignette, a window into the, the life of this competition. And I think in the course of the discussion highlights what makes this competition so incredibly special, and why it is the longest running, biggest, largest, most historical international law and code competition in the world, which is the first reason why you would want to be an author for it. It is a huge, huge privilege to be a chain in this massive legacy 
Um, and what it leads to is a network of individuals who will see you as a demigod. Uh, you created a problem that I participated in in X year. I, I, as a law professor, travel the world. Everywhere I go, there's Jessup students, uh, former participants, former coaches. They constantly identify me in a crowded room at a conference. They will stop me and will say, you owe me an apology <laughs> because you wrote that problem that I had to deal with. Um, but more, more broader than that, it makes you a better writer, a better teacher, if that is a career you want to pursue, a better litigator, if that is a career you want to pursue. Um, it increases your citation counts, as has been mentioned already. Um, but I, I, I just think it creates uh, a unique opportunity to pay forward. Every one of us uh, who's listening has probably has a connection to this competition. Being the author is one of the best ways you can pay forward for all the benefits that this program is giving you and to be a, 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 a sole developer of the benefits they will give other people. I think that with that, I can feel comfortable ending all of my personal Thanks, Asaf. Over to Leslie. Oh, well, I'll just say it's approaching two years now since I've left Ilsa and what a lovely experience it is to be reunited with some of the Jessup people that I worked with the most and um, how it brings back so many fresh memories for me of what a spectacular community this really is. And we're all united in the same mission, which is to deliver a great educational experience to as many students as possible. And so all of the work that goes into this and all of the attention and effort is all directed in that same to that same place to open the doors of public international law to as many students as possible and to give them this experience of sharing it with students from countries that they've never been to and have never heard of and will unite them all in that same experience. So um, I think it's incredible that there are as many people that are as dedicated as they are. I think you'll be hard pressed to find um, other communities in which you have that the depth of volunteer uh, commitment that you have here in the Jessup and what a wonderful thing it is. So thank you for inviting me to participate and relive what was um, an amazing decade of my life. And, and thank you for joining us, Leslie. Uh, Stephen, over to you. Well, I guess I would say this at the outset. <clears throat> Drafting a problem is not for everyone. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of ways of contributing to the process, to the outcomes, the, the ones that Leslie just talked about. Um, and uh, this is just one of them. It is, as Asaf said, it, it is a particularly high profile one. It is one that will garner attention and, and, and adulation or not, as the case may be. Um, but um, again, there, there will be only one or one small set of authors each year. And um, uh, even the process of, of putting together a proposal is time consuming and, and onerous. And, uh, and again, it may not be for everyone. Not everyone has time. Not everyone has the time this requires. And that's fine. As I said, there are lots of ways of contributing to the, the universe of Jessup uh, without being the author. However, that said, it is really a thrill. It, it is a thrill to see at the final round, uh, 
judges from the International Court of Justice who have thought about the problem that you posed to them. And they are about to undertake an exercise of adjudicating a dispute between the two best teams in the world. Uh, and they're talking about your brainchild. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty cool feeling. Um, and uh, if it's a feeling that you can share with a co-author, so much the better because it means that you and he or she have a bond that really is unique, is irreplaceable. So it's great fun, it's, but it's, uh, and it's very challenging. But the main, the main point, I think, is the one that Leslie just made, that to be an author, you're being a critical component in this very large, very complex process of engaging students from around the world on the process of international advocacy, on the goals of the International Court of Justice, of the idea of the rule of law governing international affairs, that we resolve disputes peacefully, not by bombing each other, and we talk to each other, we listen to each other. All of that is part of the lesson that we tried to teach. And again, the problem, a critical part of it, not the entirety. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us. And uh, Michael, over to you. And if you could also just pinpoint for those of the listeners who might get too excited and want to, you know, submit a proposal for 2025, the timeline as well. But of course, primarily your concluding thoughts. Mute. Uh, Michael, you're on mute. <laughs> I I think no, that's just what my voice sounds like. I'm at altitude, so I think I have two uh, two comments. One of which is exactly uh, what you were going to say. What what next? What do I do next if I want to contribute? Uh, so Stephen pointed out there are many many ways to uh, contribute to the Jessup competition. Um, as executive director of a small nonprofit organization, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that one of those ways is to donate to join the All Rise Society to contribute to the International Law Students Association. Um, you can email us or you can visit us on the web at www.ilsa.org. Uh, your contributions at this time of year really go to getting teams and judges to Washington for the international rounds. They go to supporting uh, the conduct of national rounds around the world. I just had a call just before this meeting with a team from a country that shall remain nameless. Um, and I, I won't even play the but it rhymes with game. Um, you know, who need about $3,500 to come to the international rounds. You know, we've got this part covered. We can we can stay at the embassy. We can whatever. We need to figure out how to get those plane tickets taken care of. And all I can do is say, okay, I will put that in the end of your appeal. I will reach out. Um, you know, we have three or four national rounds in places like Pakistan, Iraq, South Africa, um, Ethiopia. Did I say Ethiopia? Ethiopia, Iraq, Pakistan, South Africa. Um, 
who have said, okay, we have raised this much from local sources, from the host school, from everything else. We could really use an additional $2,000 or $3,000 to pay for the trophies or to, you know, as a, as an award to the championship team to assist them in their trip to Washington. So, um, that is one way that we can all donate to Ilsa. And I'm glad to see three members of our All Rise Society on this call. And Cheyenne, I, I urge you to join your fellow fellow friends of Jessup in uh, in supporting us through the All Rise Society. Um, or just donating, you know, at the end of the year. Um, now, if you have listened to all of this and you say, yep, that's me. I see myself in a couple of years right where Asaf is, uh, maybe in a few more years where Michael Pyle is, and maybe a couple of years after that where Stephen Schneebaum is. Um, but I want to be an author, and I want my journey to start today. We put in all kinds of deadlines and all kinds of forms and all kinds of everything else, but email me. Email us at jessup at ilsa.org. Email me at pyle at ilsa.org, P-E-I-L, and say, hey, I've got an idea. Because usually what I will do with that, even when I was not working for Ilsa, is I will say, well, that's an interesting idea. Can I introduce you to Peter Tseng? Can I introduce you to, um, and can the two of you have a chat about this, about what the process is? There have even been times where we have taken somebody and said, you've got half of a really good problem here. Let me introduce you to another person that emailed us who's got half of a really good problem and see if the two of you can work together. Um, that's a year-round process, and I I would say I don't get enough of those, um, and I'm 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 asking for it here because now my inbox is going to be flooded with people saying, "What about water rights?" Um, the uh, but we appreciate those, and so and that helps you to refine your problem. Um, I don't do it anymore because I'm executive director, but when I was not executive director. I would get emails from people, including authors that are on this call, saying, hey, could you have a look? The deadline is next week for, for submissions. Just have a look and, and, and give, us, give us your 30,000-foot view of, of whether this problem works or where the, where the issues are. There are a lot of people in the Jessupverse who are willing to do that uh, for, for a prospective author. So keep the conversation going. Um, uh, reach out to me. I will introduce you to past authors. I will introduce you to other kindred spirits. Talk to your former teammates. Talk to your former coaches. Um, and then uh, keep an eye on the mailing list. Keep an eye on the uh, uh, on the website uh, because we always announce these things as they come up. Uh, I'm in the process of an experiment right now with how the calendar works uh, because I'd like to give us more time to work on things like the bench memo or the poster or whatever. So watch this space. We will have we'll have more information coming out over the course of the next year. But as as I said before, and as Asaf has suggested, we uh, uh, it's oftentimes a more than one year process. You submit a proposal, or the proposal uh, gestates uh, for a year or two, and then finally it it springs fully formed from your head and. The editorial committee then spends the entire summer beating it back into submission and turning it into a beautiful compromise. So please, we welcome all comers, uh, and we love when a great proposal comes from someone we've never worked with before, or someone that uh, uh, someone we've never heard of before. Uh, thank you, Michael, Asaf, Leslie, Stephen, uh, for joining us, and of course, always a pleasure seeing you. 
and I hope this has given those of you who may be interested in authoring a mood problem a solid footing to start with. And that is it from our end. And we'll uh, see our listeners in the next episode.